14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of His will, and to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, when you also, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you may be seated. When I was uh, in college, I, I played um, a lot of pickup basketball. You know, pickup basketball is kind of everybody's there just looking for a game. There's no, there's no organization to kind of how things are done. You just show up and you try to find guys that you're going to play basketball with. And as that's the case, when it's not organized, when people aren't chosen, you end up oftentimes with a pretty wide range of skills and athleticism. So you may have guys who are really, really great athletes and then guys who, you know, are like not so much great athletes. You could have people who are playing varsity sports at the Division I college level and people who aren't doing such things. Well, there was this one time we were playing and there was a guy that was, um, that was on my team. He actually played for the Texas basketball team. He was an incredible athlete, a great player. He was about 6'7", could jump out of the gym. He was built like a Greek statue. And he was on my team, which is pretty nice, right? Well, uh, there was this one time in the game where I had this idea. Um, since he's on my team, since he's my teammate, let's see if I can set a screen for this guy to get him a little more open. You know, a screen is when you try to step in front of his defender to get the guy on your team open so he can take a shot. So I did that. I tried, went to set a screen on him. Now, what I haven't told you, though, so far, is that the man guarding this guy on my team was a, a, a man named Tony Brackens, who played defensive end uh, for the Texas football team. He was an All-American. Uh, he weighed 267 pounds. He ended up playing nine years in the NFL. He made a Pro Bowl. And in case you haven't kind of started to put this together yet, um, you know what? Ha there, I think there's a law of physics about what happens when a 270-pound man trained to kill quarterbacks uh, comes in contact with someone who looks like me. And let's just say it was it was not the most effective screen. Um, it, it happened, I think, all in slow motion. I literally landed out of bounds. Okay, so that that's what happened. It didn't really do a whole lot of good for my team. Truly, the force that was applied to me was more than I could handle. 
Now, maybe you've been in a situation like that, not physically, but spiritually or emotionally, where you feel like the force that's at work that's being applied against me is more than it feels like I can take. Maybe it feels like just in your life you are doing good just to keep your head above water because of work and family and children who also feel like they've been trained to kill mothers and you're just trying to keep your head above water a little bit. Or maybe you're a parent uh, of a kid who's old enough to be hearing kind of the, the cultural noise and, and really the, the cultural narratives that are out there. The stories that say, listen, the way that you're going to be happy is that you have just kind of got to be true to yourself all the time. Or the way that you are going to find uh, any kind of freedom is that you have to look and turn to yourself as the only one who can make those decisions, of course, aided with your little piece of technology that's with you. And the way that you're going to find your identity and your place in this world is you're going to find people to like you or you're going to find something that you're really good at and you're going to build all of your identity on that thing. And if you're a parent and your children are hearing those messages, you know, when you sit down with them and you open up God's word and you say, no, actually what God's word says is that, um, is that really it's God who made us and we are meant to, we are meant and called and created to glorify him in all that we do. And we are meant and called and created to bow our knee to this king. And that the way that we find our identity and our place in the world is that we actually find it in his love and his mercy for us and what he's done for us in Christ. But sometimes it can feel like the force that's applied from the outside is too strong to overcome. Maybe you're feeling that yourself. You're hearing those messages for yourself. You're hearing the message over and over that says, you've got to keep up. You've got to keep up with the people around you. And they're prettier than you. And they weigh less than you. And they're more successful than you. And they have more money than you. And if you don't keep up, then something is desperately wrong with you. And you're hearing that and it feels like that force is so powerful that you're going to crumble under it. Friends, did you know that uh, the city of Ephesus, the, the letter to which this... The city to which this letter was written is not so different, really, than our culture. The city of Ephesus was a big metropolitan center, lots of trade going in and out. There was lots of actually real pagan worship happening where there were statues and temples built to pagan gods. But there was also a whole lot of this, this kind of secular pagan worship that happens with us too. Where people were worshiping things like money and power and freedom and all of the stuff that is still in our cultural context. Sometimes we open up the Bible and we think like, oh, everybody's a Christian in the Bible. Not so much. I read one commentator that said, you know, when Paul starts out and he says to the saints in Ephesus, it's like saying to all the Christians in Iran or to all the evangelicals working at MTV. Right? This is a small group of people. But what Paul says to them, these folks that are feeling oftentimes the same kind of discouragement that we are feeling, like just the forces that are at work are craving in on them and they can't do anything, what does he tell them? It's something amazing. What he tells them is that God is up to no less than cosmic redemption and that they get to be a part of that. He tells them that God is at work putting all things together, bringing all things together in Jesus, and that they actually get to benefit from that. From that. 
That is quite an encouragement if you are feeling overwhelmed. Friends, as we open up the book of Ephesians, the Lord says the same thing to us. That God is in the process of redeeming the cosmos. He is in the process of putting all things together in Christ and that we get to be the big beneficiaries of that. If you are feeling like it's, you're having a hard time keeping your head above water, if you are feeling beaten down at all, I hope that Ephesians, the entire book, and particularly this first chapter, will be a great encouragement to you. Because is it a truth of what God is doing that is clearer and more powerful than those other truths that we hear every day? We're going to dig into this um, just kind of in three little sections. We're going to look first at, at, at the plan that God is on, that purpose and that plan. Then we'll talk about the person that that plan revolves around. And then we'll talk about the benefits, how we fit into that. So let's talk about that purpose first. When we open up uh, this chapter here, this wonderful first chapter of Ephesians, I want you to skip down, if you've got a Bible in front of you, uh, to verses 9 and 10. Because this is really kind of the heart of what Paul is talking about here. Let me read this again. Uh, That God actually is making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, and then listen to this, to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. When Paul writes that, uh, that God's plan is to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth, that word unite in Greek, which is the original language that the New Testament was written in, that word really is used oftentimes in, in rhetoric, in speech and in writing. And it really means to summarize, to bring together. Maybe you were taught to write or to speak like this where you would say, okay, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And then I'm going to tell you, you know, what I'm telling you. And then I'm going to tell you what I told you. And that last part really is summarizing. It's bringing it all together. It's kind of the culmination of how everything comes together. And what God says, or what Paul says that God is doing here, is he is bringing everything together in Jesus. And he is doing so in an incredible cosmic way. Think about a time in your life where there has been some sort of division and you've been reunited. Maybe you spent a month at camp as a kid, and then you came home and you saw your parents and your siblings for the first time. Or maybe a spouse has been on a long business trip, or if you're a military family, you could take this to uh, to an incredibly broad perspective, right? Maybe your spouse has been gone for a year or more. And just think about that time when you're reunited. Think about that moment when you're back together, when what was apart has been brought together. It's glorious and joyful. That's what Paul is talking about here. I have, a, um, I have a good friend who went through a, a very difficult divorce quite a few years ago. And it was the kind of difficult divorce that not only kind of tears apart family, but actually has its repercussions even in friendships. The kind where people take sides. And this friend of mine and another friend of mine used to be the closest of friends. They were tight. They did everything together. And in the course of this difficult divorce, their friendship was ripped apart. And for the better part of two years, they didn't speak to each other. And then when they did, when they had to speak to each other, it was just pretty curt or pretty difficult. But last year, I went to a little retreat with a bunch of my old college buddies, these two guys being among them. And they pulled up together in the same car 
They had ridden together. And there were two bikes on the back of that car so that they could take a ride together. And they walked out with their arms around each other, embracing one another and sharing life together. The Lord had repaired their friendship. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the bringing together of things that were once apart. We're talking about that kind of joy, that kind of amazing togetherness. For these guys, their relationship is actually even deeper now than it was before. And when Paul says that God's plan is to unite all things in Christ, that's what he's talking about. The bringing together of things that were once separate. What is... It it, it honestly... Is no exaggeration to say that the Lord is actually bringing harmony to the universe. That He is making things the way that they're supposed to be. That sounds like hyperbole, doesn't it? I know it does. But it's true. That is the vision that the Bible paints. Is that God is at work redeeming the cosmos. Bringing together all things. That all things includes some really wonderful stuff, right? It means that God is at work doing things like, you know, making it such that there there will not be tension. One day there will not be tension between what's good for people and what's good for the natural environment and the world around us. There will not be tension between uh, my work and my family. There will not be tension between races or sexes or cultures. There will not be conflict between countries. That is what the Lord is about. He is bringing things together so that they are the way that they are supposed to be. That's the plan. That's the purpose. That's what we have laid out for us here in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Just that little thing. So how is he doing it? This will move on to the second part. Who is he doing it through is really a better question. And the word that we get over and over, if you open up and you look and even just kind of scan chapter 1, is that 12 times, 12 times Paul alludes to this happening through Jesus Christ. Just listen to the first few verses. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption uh, to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Are you catching the drift? Over and over Paul is saying it's through Jesus that God is working this amazing cosmic redemptive plan. If you're here this morning and you're not really sure who Jesus is, this is a question worth grappling with. Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, he asked them point blank, he says, who do do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is it that you think that I am and what is it that I came to do? And that answer is really important. That question is important for us to ask ourselves as well because very oftentimes we can kind of just get it wrong. We minimize Jesus and what he's come to do. And we minimize him so much that we put him in this little box and we give him a particular category that fits exactly what we want. There's a pastor and author named Kevin DeYoung and he's made this list of uh, all of the names of Jesus, the kinds of Jesus that are popular in our society. I'm going to read you some of these. Listen, because Jesus, Jesus is not culturally dead in our society. He's actually pretty popular. But listen for what kind of Jesus is often popular in our society. 
There's Republican Jesus, who is against tax increases and activist judges, and he's for family values, and he loves guns. Then there's Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart. He wants to reduce our carbon footprint, and he loves big government. Then there's Therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems. He heals our past. He tells us not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for the people who aren't as open-minded as he is. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and he determines the outcome of Super Bowls. There's martyr Jesus who's a good man who died a cruel death so that we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus who is meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks around barefoot, and for whatever reason has blue eyes. There's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps us remember that all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, hates churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, would rather have people out in nature finding the God within and listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus who's good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo and stick it to the man and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus who's a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. And there's good example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. You know what's so enticing and dangerous about that list is that there's some bit of truth in all of those. There's some little bit of Jesus in all or at least most of those descriptions. But what they've done is they've reduced him into something that is so small that we have missed the cosmic plan of God that has worked through Christ. Because if you open up the scriptures and you start investigating who is Jesus, you're going to find a much bigger answer. An answer that says, this is the creator that has come to recreate. This is the one God himself who has taken on flesh so that he might take our sin and our brokenness upon himself. This is the one who lived the life that we couldn't, who died the death that we should have, who was raised to new life so that he might be the one through whom this cosmic redemption takes place. This is Jesus, the one who is bringing all things together. It's in him that this cosmic redemption is happening. And get this, it's also in him that we get to be in on it. We oftentimes use that language of Jesus in me, but really the more biblical language is me in Jesus. Me found in Him so that I can actually be a part of this amazing cosmic redemption that's happening. That leads us really to our third point, which is, what does this all have to do with us? What are the results here for us? Well, let me just direct your attention again to verse 3. Listen to what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. What does that mean? 
Well, if you keep reading here, the rest of that first half of chapter 1 is an explanation of what it means. In fact, actually, uh, in Greek, verses 3 through 14 is all one sentence. It's like Paul just can't stop talking about it. He starts talking about, this is what it means that Jesus has loved you, and this is what it means for you, and this is who you are. And it just keeps pouring out. He says, you're chosen, you're adopted, you're loved, you're forgiven. It's like, I heard when Handel was writing the Messiah, he couldn't write down the notes fast enough because they were coming to his head so quickly. You get the same feeling here, that Paul is just, the, the understanding of who we are in Christ is so strong, and it's flowing to him so fast, he just keeps writing and writing and writing and writing and you get this one enormous amazing sentence. And it's incredible what this is chock full of. That he says that before the dawn of time, God chose us in love to be His own. Do you ever think about those times, you know, in third grade when you weren't, when they did the choosing, you know, for who's on which team and who's going to be the first person up for Red Rover. Some of you remember those things very fondly because you were always the first person chosen. And some of us would rather not remember all of those times. The truth is, what the Bible says is we don't have to feel like that because God has actually chosen us not because of what we've done, but in spite of it. Before we were able to do anything, before we were able to do anything to earn His favor, before we were able to do anything to reject it, God has actually given us His love. That's an amazing truth. I talked to somebody not long ago who was still reeling from not making the cheer squad in the third grade. I don't even know who they're cheering for in third grade. But still, it was deeply impactful for her. You don't have to feel that way if you belong to Jesus. If you're united to Him, what He says is true of you is that before you could do anything on your own, He chose you in love. He goes on to say that He has adopted us to be His children. That those who were once outsiders have been brought in. He's brought us into His house and given us everything that is available to a son. An inheritance. A loving household. He's given us all of it. That He's cleansed and forgiven us, redeemed us. That He's sealed us with His Spirit. He goes on and on. And we could stand up here and talk for hours about each one of these and how amazing they are. The truth is, if you are united to Jesus, this is what's true of you. This is what God says is true of you. You are His. You belong to Him. He has chosen you in love. He has adopted you as a son or a daughter. He has given you His Spirit. He has forgiven you of your sins. He has redeemed you. And did you realize that these verbs are all past tense and they're all passive They're all about what's been done already. This is a really key point. If you're you're just exploring who Jesus is, I want you to hear this. Pay, Pay attention, please, if you've been falling asleep until now. This is a good part. Every other form of religion is about what you must do in order to get into the good graces of whatever God or system that is. You've got to pursue some sort of form of reaching enlightenment or reaching nirvana or reaching peace or reaching some sort of you know, pilgrimage. There's a list of things that you've got to accomplish. There's a system that you've got to take care of. There's a life that you have to make sure you live. And if you do those things well, then maybe, just maybe, you'll be in. But what happens if you slip up? What happens if you have a bad day? What happens if you make a wrong turn? What happens if you're not doing it the way that you're supposed to? Can you ever, can you ever really feel like you're in and like it's done? And that's what's so different about the gospel. 
is the gospel is not about primarily what we do. It's primarily about what has been done for us. That Jesus has done what we could never do on our own. That he has lived the life that we couldn't live. That he has died the death that we deserved. That he has been raised to new life. And that has been done and it's been done for us. And all we do is simply respond to it. To become a Christian simply is to turn from that system of doing and to turn toward the beautiful reality that it's been done. To be a Christian and to continue as a Christian is the same thing. To continually turn to what Jesus has done. And guess what, friends? That actually makes us those who want to follow. It makes us those who want to serve. It makes us those who want to love. It is what Jesus has done for us that makes us who we are, that we might then be able to respond to it. All right, let's close here with just a couple of um, little bits of application. How do we respond to this? What do we do? Three things really quickly. The first thing I think that if we understand who we are in Jesus, what it produces in us is that it produces humility and praise. If we are those who understand that there's nothing that we have done that's earned God's love and favor for us, then it will make us those who are humble. Right? Because the opposite is true. If I think I've earned it, then I'm going to swell with pride. And if I think that I haven't earned it and it hasn't been given, then I'm actually going to shrink in despair. But if I know that I haven't earned it and Jesus has given it to me simply because He loves me, then it's going to make me humble. It's going to make me praise Him. It's going to increase my worship. If you want to increase humility, soak yourself in the truth of who God is and of who you are because of Jesus. That's the first thing. It will, it will make you more humble and it will make you actually worship more deeply. The second is this. Is it actually encourages us in our difficulties. When you are feeling overwhelmed, when you are feeling like you can barely keep your head above water, when you are feeling like those messages coming in are just too strong to stop, when you are replaying in your mind the most difficult things that have ever happened to you in your life, the antidote is to look and to play forward what is going to happen. That is that the Lord is at work redeeming the cosmos, bringing all things together, and He has made us a part of that. That is the good news that is true, that we get to speak to our hearts when we tend to believe something else. That should be an encouragement to us in times of difficulty. And then here's the third thing, is that it actually promotes for us participation. It promotes participation for us. This is the amazing truth of what God says about redemption, is that though He is at work doing it all, He actually lets us kind of join in on the process. That He is doing His redemptive work even through us. That's an amazing privilege, isn't it? So as we get up and we make breakfast for our children, and we go to work, and we pursue uh, art and music and literature and economics and education and business and medicine and law and all the things that God has called us to, He's actually working in us. He's working His redemptive purposes in us. He is at work bringing all things together even through the things that we're doing in this world. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to leave you with this this question. And then we're just going to ponder it for just a minute. What would your life be like if you believed the truth of what God is doing in the universe? The truth of what is true about you and who you are in Christ. If you believed that more than anything else... 
How would that change your life? How would that change your family? How would that change your work? How would that change our city if we all believe that together? How would it change the world? Let's spend a few minutes considering those things together. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back up. And we'll simply just have some time pondering. Let me pray for us before we do. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in Jesus. That's all we really can say is thank you. And as you will pray here in the second half of chapter 1 of Ephesians, Lord, let us believe it. Let us believe it deeply. Lord, show us more and more who we are in Christ so that we might be encouraged, so that we might, um, so that we might participate in your activity in the world. And Lord, so that we might be made humble and we might worship you more deeply. Will you do those things in us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Gracious Father, we come together this morning to praise you as the King and Ruler of all creation. We praise you for your power, your glory, and your holiness. We praise you for your love, mercy, and forgiveness. We ask for your mercy on this nation, Lord God. It is you and you alone who can open the eyes and hearts of those who have been deceived. Weaken that which is evil and strengthen that which is good. Please bring our nation together and let the division cease. May God-fearing officials be placed into offices of authority and may they make wise decisions. Grant your protection to all the first responders and those who serve in our military. We pray for the local churches in Comal County that each one will proclaim the true gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We pray that you will bless and grow Trinity Grace Church Plant in San Antonio and Michael Novak as its church planter. We ask your blessings on the new Christian outreach ministries here in New Braunfels, especially Kids Club, Bavarian Manor, communities in schools, and options for life. Continue to grow these endeavors with adequate funding and the volunteers that are so desperately needed. We pray for the students and teachers in public and private schools. Please protect them and enable them to have a successful academic year. We pray for those attending college for the first time. Lead them to godly friendships and wise decisions. Bless the various RUF ministries on the college campuses, especially Tim Mulder at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. Bless our foreign ministers, missionaries serving around the world, especially Rachel Bowserman in Japan and Lauren and Andrew in China. Guide, protect, and encourage them. We ask that you would comfort Tracy White and her family as they grieve the loss of her brother. We pray for those with upcoming surgeries, especially Gary Bird. We thank you for the gift of family and friends and ask that you enlarge our hearts to serve others in their time of need. Lord, you understand and know us inside and out. You are always here for us, and you are the only source of peace in our lives. Help us to replace our disappointments, our fears, and worries with worship and praise for you. Thank you that you are bringing together things which are separated through Christ our Lord. It is with grateful and humble hearts this Sunday morning that we thank you for the first birthday of Hope Presbyterian Church Plant. Help us to remember that this is your church, which you have so graciously given to us. We praise you for the uncompromising truth of your word and for calling Derek to proclaim it. We are grateful for our precious members and visitors who are here today. Please give us willing hearts to serve others and to share with them the mercy and forgiveness you have given to those who believe in your name. Enable this church to bring glory to you so that your kingdom will come and thy will be done. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen. that the Lord gives us a picture of something so large, so universal, so cosmic, and then turns around and gives us something small and personal that brings it back down to reality for us. That is what the Lord's table is really for us, is a taste of this cosmic redemption, a taste of the renewal of all things, but something that we can see and we can hold and we can touch and we can smell and we can taste. 
He gives us a little promise of what is to come. If you are united to Christ by faith, this is the promise that is for you. This is the place where you come and you're strengthened. When you are feeling like your head is barely above water, you get to come here and taste the mercy and the goodness of Jesus given to you.